Hello everyone, we are already on the seventh episode of the Wally Pod, a show where I interview my peers who are embarking on their careers in areas from investment banking to software engineering to entrepreneurship and more. We explore the lessons they learn navigating college, their plan for future success, and the views they hold on the future of the world as the next generation that is taking the reins. Subscribe to join me weekly for informational and motivating interviews. If you've enjoyed the podcast so far, I'd really appreciate it if you could forward it on to one other person that you think would enjoy it as well. In this episode, I interview my friend Austin Haig. Austin and I go way back. We've been in school together our whole lives from kindergarten through high school. Cub Scouts, business competitions. He's been one of my longest friends. Austin has an incredible story that has led him to a career in product management. After completing his degrees in computer science and business at the University of Michigan this coming year, he'll be joining Salesforce next summer full-time as a product manager, a job that's incredibly competitive to get with only 11 other undergraduates joining him in that role. This interview was actually recorded slightly before Austin made his decision to accept his offer to return to Salesforce, so you'll hear a bit about his thought process there. Austin has several interesting internship experiences from building out an application at United Health Group focused around uh, the opioid epidemic to working as a product management intern at Redfin in Seattle to his most recent internship at Salesforce that he did virtually this summer. Austin is also an avid sailor and was a captain on the Michigan sailing team and held a vice president role on the national committee as well. Beyond that, Austin is wise beyond his years and has incredible career and life advice to offer to anyone, especially for networking and those interested in a career in product management. With that, we'll jump right into our conversation as Austin describes his early interests in product management and business. Actually, I don't know how much you know about this, but I was playing a lot of Minecraft, an unhealthy amount, actually. <laughs> um, so that actually is, is sort of the foundation of how I got into product and how I, how I got into computer science and business. So maybe I'll tell a little bit about that story. Yeah, go for it. So as, as you know, there was, there was the DECA and the, the business classes in high school, and, and that was sort of the formalized part of how I got interested in business. But before that, even, I was learning how to do business before I even recognized that what I was doing was business. I joined a Minecraft server in probably sixth grade and uh, really became addicted uh, to, to playing Minecraft. And mm-hmm. I, I loved the process of creating something from scratch, like placing the little blocks in the game. And you can join a server and play with other people. And I really enjoyed building things uh, with others too, especially people I met online all over the world. And for a while, I thought that I really wanted to be an architect because I was so interested in, in Minecraft and, and Google SketchUp and th- things like that and that creative process. After about four years into playing Minecraft, I realized it wasn't really the game that I was interested in, but rather running a group of, of people toward a mission. When we were playing Minecraft for the first year and a half, we realized that a lot of the people who were playing were 
going online to escape some kind of uh, issue they're facing in their everyday life, whether that was uh, they, they grew up gay in a really conservative community or their parents were getting divorced or they were getting bullied at school, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. The the internet was an escape in, in a way to, to get away from all of that. And the more time you spend on the internet, the more you realize it's an awful place to do that typically uh, yeah. because people people are pretty awful. So what we did is we created a Minecraft community called Emerald World that was aimed to be a more inclusive, safe space for people who just wanted to have fun playing Minecraft together. And, uh, we had very strict anti-bullying and, and anti-racist and, and all of those policies. And we had a volunteer staff team of, I guess it grew to about 25 that would help uh, enforce that. And and to me, this is always just what I wanted to do. This is like my, my free time when I wasn't working, but uh, in retrospect, I was running a business. We were learning how to launch a website, how to market. We were paying for advertising. We were running a server hosted in Chicago. Uh, I was hiring staff. I was, it was my, myself and a guy named Morgan. He was 15, I think, and I was 14 when we founded the server. <laughs> and we were the youngest people on the entire staff team. So all of our quote unquote employees, who we weren't paying, were all older than us. I think about probably averaging about 21. So it was, it was actually really funny, and I can't believe they respected us because we sounded like Mickey Mouse or something. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it, it was a great experience in learning how to run a staff team and how to motivate people when you aren't paying them, which is exactly what, what a product manager does. Uh, and I, I didn't even know what I was getting ready for, but uh, I learned how to code through that and developed an appreciation for the power of technology and the power of business to do something good in the world. So... I think that combined with the the high school business programs and my parents are both entrepreneurs. So all of those things inspired me to be interested in business. And I went into college knowing I definitely wanted to do business. I I went straight into the University of Michigan, the major in business administration at the Ross School of Business. And I actually wrote my college essay about Minecraft. That that Minecraft story is incredible. I think you've told me part of it, but... I uh, I didn't know the whole story behind it. Video games are, are really cool. I remember a time when video games were just thought of like a useless waste of time, especially by parents. And th- I think there's there's a lot of learning that can come out of video games. And especially if you're in a community like that, as long as you can avoid the hate. And <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And you, you can make a really big impact with, with video games. They're super scalable, obviously. I mean, t- about 20,000 people join the community at some point. Um, and I, I remember having just very difficult conversations with people who are considering committing suicide or uh, just going through a, a tough time in their life. And, and actually, last winter, I had someone reach out on Christmas and saying, hey, Austin, I, I don't know if you remember who I am, but I met you on Minecraft like six years ago, and uh, the the community was my family then, and I'm I'm here today because of that, and just wanted to reach out and thank you and everyone else who was helping. So I mean that that kind of thing is super heartwarming. That's incredible. Yeah. Are you are you still involved at all in it? Occasionally, I'll I'll poke my head in and <laughs> to see that yeah. it still exists. Um, there's the the community has morphed quite a bit. It's under a new name now. Um, and there's just a couple of familiar faces, but especially those who I was running the, the server with, uh, we'll, we'll send a Facebook message every now and then. Yeah. Um, and maybe maybe meet up actually in person eventually once all this coronavirus stuff shuts down. But 
Um, it's I, I think people who don't really dive into to video games or the online world don't realize you can make really meaningful friendships online. Um, you you're interacting in a way that's very different from in person when you're just talking to someone to hear what they're they're thinking and what their thoughts are. There's no social uh, incentives to be friends with someone or not be friends with someone, and um, you can form some really genuine interactions there. Yeah, yeah, and probably gonna start becoming even more mainstream. I mean, not it's not mainstream now, but I feel like with the evolution of video games yeah. in the coming years, it's it's certainly gonna be more more and more like that. But that's Absolutely. that's an awesome story, and and so cool to hear that that people are helping each other out online. But let's move on from that. So the two of us, you mentioned it briefly, but we were lucky enough to have this professional immersion program at our high school called Vantage. And we basically teamed up with local companies to work on projects for them. You had one semester project with Fairview Health. The two of us had one with Habitat for Humanity, and then you had one uh, with Peak Travel. Do you want to just briefly talk about what you got out of those experiences? It sounds like you were already pretty interested in business and basically how they helped you form your your career ideas going into college absolutely that that business program absolutely changed my life and i'm super fortunate to be part of it and to actually be on the team with with you is super fun too uh the the first project for fairview health was an architectural project it was to ideate what a super super clinic might looks like might look like for physical therapy and there, I think at that point, I was still pretty set on being an architect. So it was really great experience to see what that actually might look like when you aren't building buildings in Minecraft. Um, it, was, it was a really fun project, but I think one of the most valuable things with that is it inspired me to actually go talk to a ton of architects and say, what is your job actually like? Um, and I think it was around that time that I realized I didn't actually want to be an architect. Uh, I, I really liked the the problem solving of what someone who's going into to physical therapy, what are they actually trying to achieve? Like what is their job to be done using a product manager framework? I didn't know what that was at that time. Um, but what's, what's the value that it's going to create and figuring out the different ways we could deliver that was the really interesting part of the consulting project and the architecture I, I got excited about, uh, but also learned that there's a lot more details involved in real architecture um, than just drawing up the, the rough outline, which is what I was more interested in. Um, and then at Habitat for Humanity, that was again, uh, just seeing business meets doing something good for the world. Um, and that one was an interesting project because that was the first time I ever got exposure to marketing. We were working on creating advertising for the state fair booth to help veterans realize the benefits that Habitat for Humanity could provide to them. And um, that, was, that was really powerful also because we were meeting with, with veterans and seeing just how, how different you, you market something to different people um, mm-hmm. and learning the, the, the ways to be respectful with, with marketing something like that is a, a very nuanced uh, topic. Mm-hmm. And I also learned how nonprofits work and how they don't work <laughs> and uh, yeah. saw, saw kind of the pace of the impact you can make there. Uh, I think 
if, if you remember, we ended up staying on past that consulting project to see it through to the end. Uh, yeah. Past the school year into the summer to actually uh, work the state fair and, and actually get our, our materials out there. But that was really fun. That also was a good practice for design for me. Um, and both of the, the projects, Fairview and Habitat, were just so much more real than normal projects in school because you're actually having to work with a team and work with real uh, stakeholders to, to deliver something that was actually valuable. So that, I think that was the main thing for me is just understanding that what I really want to do with business is make impact. It's, it's not about making money. It's not about, uh, I mean, in school, it's all about study and understanding like, how do I get the job? How do I get into college? All of these things is like, hold on, all of this is to actually do something for people. And I mm-hmm. think that's, that's one of the main things Vantage connected the dots for, for me. Uh, it was also a great networking opportunity. My my friends from that, including yourself, I'm still uh, good friends with and really mm-hmm. respect today. And also, they paired us with some mentors uh, in that program. And and Paul, who's my mentor from Vantage, I still get coffee with every couple months, um, like five years later, which is pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, that's super cool. One one takeaway for people there is it it is pretty cool and powerful to have a mentor early on that you can go back to year over year because they they really get to see you grow. And I think they can offer a lot of advice, especially so early on in life. I think having someone see your your progress over time, will they'll, they'll recognize a lot more what actually matters to you. And they'll see many different mistakes you've made throughout. Mm-hmm. And now when I, when I call Paul and I'm saying, you know, I'm considering an offer between Salesforce and Microsoft, uh, most people would say, well, they both sound good, you know, follow your heart, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Paul's like, what are you doing? With, uh, I mean, one of those makes way more sense for you. Like, come on. Uh, like, so I think having someone who really knows you that deeply and sees your decisions over time, is just super valuable. And I think the earlier you can form mentorship relationships, uh, the better. And I actually have a lot of thoughts about that in terms of college networking too. Mm-hmm. We'll we'll get to that in a second, and and that Salesforce Microsoft is going to be some foreshadowing for later in the episode as well. But we are still at the beginning of your college career, so you ended up going to Michigan. Do you want to just tell us how you ended up there? And yeah, we'll leave it at that. How how'd you end up at Michigan? Well, I applied to I think like thirteen colleges because I was anxious and uh, way too way too obsessed with it. I made a gigantic spreadsheet of every every college I was mm-hmm. applying to and every single factor that I thought might matter to me. And I tried to assign numerical values like it was some kind of math equation. And uh, it, it ended up being, I went to Michigan and it really felt right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the spreadsheet helped me narrow down to the top three choices that I probably could have decided on the top of my head anyway. Actually, the biggest factor that helped narrow it down was just where I got in because I got plenty of projections. Yeah. Uh, so that that helps make the decision easier. But I was ultimately deciding between Michigan, University of Virginia, and Tufts. And it was easier to decide between Michigan and UVA because I got direct admission to the business school at Michigan. So there's just less risk there. So then I was deciding between Michigan and Tufts, and that was apples and oranges, uh, just completely different experiences. But I knew I, I wanted something that was very application based, like taking my learning and, and actually doing something with it as I was learning and less liberal arts. Uh, Michigan's a super pre-professional school and there's a lot of very tactical uh, classes and, and majors at, at Michigan that are emphasized. So I think that's that's how I ended up deciding to go to Michigan. I would have been a, 
probably international studies or something at Tufts. Who knows where I'd be now, yeah, what seriously. I'd be doing. Um, but I, I went to Michigan for, for business is basically why I went there. And, and when I visited, I stayed with uh, a friend's older brother who was literally in tears. He was a senior and he was literally in tears about how much he loved the school uh, and uh, tearing up at least. So I think that that helped sell it. And I, I booked a flight with Spirit Airlines three weeks before I went and uh, three weeks or three weeks before the college decision deadline. Never do that. <laughs> um, the flight was not only it wasn't rescheduled, it was completely canceled. It wasn't even a, a different flight. It was just, sorry, yeah, it's just not going to happen. Here's your money. Um, so really? that was a, a pretty they... stressful. I, I think it wasn't even weather. The plane just didn't show up. It was like, yep, sorry, it's just not, no, not going to work out. It's um, a good Spirit Airlines ad. <laughs> so never, never book Spirit if you're actually wanting to get somewhere at a certain time. But um, I ended up flying out the weekend or two weekends after and it was like four days before the decision deadline and it was like well this this feels good so here we go and that's basically how I ended up there yeah I think quite often about like how just one decision in the past could have totally altered life and and college is obviously a big one that it's a huge decision but it's one decision that you could be in a totally different spot if you had chosen a different school yeah I suppose it's not that useful to think about that (laughs) i think after college most people whether they're right or wrong will convince themselves that they went to the right place for them because they're Mm -hmm. generally happy because choosing where to go to college or or not to go to college to go to technical school any of those things will make a big difference on on where you end up but i mean moving cities like there's an entirely new friend group that completely changes your life you make all these decisions that are massive throughout your life uh, and it's it's obviously more about making the most of it once you're there. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of very lucky moments that I, I had at Michigan that led to positions or opportunities that I, I never would have had elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. You've, you've talked about sailing a little bit. You got involved with the club right away. You've been super involved over, over the course of your college career. Do you want to talk about your experience? I'm sure it was very formative for you during college. Yeah. I was going into college with the expectation that I wanted to sail, but I was exhausted with the varsity experience and ready to to calm down and take a little bit more of a backseat role. And then I, I showed up to the team and loved it. It was a very different atmosphere because it's student run. I think that's a big benefit of joining a club team is some of them have, have uh, professional coaches and some of them have graduate student coaches or completely student run ultimately translates to it being a fun centered program. Uh, we, we have a lot of good sailors and we'll compete in nationals uh, every year for, I don't know how many of the last, at least the last 10 years, I think we've competed in nationals against varsity teams and we'll beat varsity teams too. But it's, it's a, a combination of this drive to do well and to focus in practice and the ultimate realization that this is, this is a social experience too. And our, we're going to have fun um, outside of sailing and before regattas and after regattas and during regattas. Um, And uh, I think you, you might be a little bit familiar of of that. Uh, I don't know if you've, you've interacted with with the Wisconsin sailing team. I think they have a similar mentality. And uh, so it was really great because I got to still learn more and really focus on becoming a better sailor, but it was just a much more well-rounded experience for me between social and, and actually competing and I, 
I became really passionate about the team and, and wanted to help. So I, I ran for a, a board position my freshman year. I was running for what was then called the it's called the race chair. Um, but I, I shifted that role to be a lot more about teaching new sailors and bringing them in and getting them up to speed. And uh, it was basically a coaching role. So that was a really great experience of learning how to communicate something very technical to people who are new to it, which is, again, like the, the more I think about all these experiences, they completely point to products management because that's a, that's a very core part of, part of the products manager's job is to, to decode complicated engineering concepts uh, for non-technical people um, or vice versa. And then I ran for captain and I had the support of my team for that. So I ended up being a co-captain uh, with who's one of my, my best friends now is working in uh, Seattle at Lyft. Um, and uh, she, she and I, her name's Amy, we, we ran the team for a year. And uh, <laughs> I guess I wasn't done still investing in sailing more. So at the at the halfway point in that of my captain year, I also ran for the, the Midwest Collegiate Sailing Association Commodore. I hate the formalities of these titles. Basically, <laughs> yeah. I, I ran Midwest sailing from an undergrad perspective and I was, was fortunate enough to be elected for that too. And this is, this is one of these happy, uh, I guess, serendipitous, unexpected events is I ran for the Midwest president position without having any idea that I was also running for the national vice president at the same time. Uh, I actually, I, I got that position. I was like, okay, cool. Now I get to help on the Midwest level and get to meet all these teams uh, a little bit more in depth. And a couple weeks after that, my coach uh, sent me a text and he said, you know, you're also the vice president now? I was like, of what? Of, of college sailing. I was like, oh, really? That's exciting. I had no idea. <laughs> so that's that's actually... Is that what always happens? Is the Midwest no. Commodore? So, like, this is just super, just by chance, the year that I ran for Midwest president, the national vice president position was rotating to the Midwest spot. Um, so normally it rotates around the conferences. So I just happened to run the year that, that mm. it happened. And I had not heard from anyone, including the people voting for me, that <laughs> that was actually the case. Uh, so that was a, another just just certainly absolute luck. I had no idea I was doing that. Um, but, but I got to have conversations on the board of directors of college sailing and, and understand the kinds of decisions and thinking that's happening on a national level for a, a sports conference. Sailing is not part of the NCAA, so it's completely self-run um, by the ICSA is, is the, the organization I was vice president on. And there's only one undergraduate on the on the board too. So I was the undergraduate representative wow. for college sailing, completely on accident. Um, and uh, probably probably that's not how it's supposed to be. I obviously took the responsibility very seriously and learned a lot and and uh, tried to make the most of it. But um, yeah, I had no idea I was running into that one. Um, but that that was probably a helpful resume item that that opened up more doors and that was complete. A complete accident seriously so out of out of those two positions especially the national one what what were the big takeaways what did you get out of it and did you have any major like were you part of any major decisions in those roles yeah it's, that's a good question um on the the midwest level and i was working on another controversial issue which was what what does college sailing look like for women and that's it's it's not controversial in the sense that I think everyone agrees or 
99% of people agree that women should have access to college sailing and, and be skippers and crews. Skippers are the ones who drive the boat. And what we were seeing is that at, at national championships and Midwest championships, it was mostly men in the skipper position and women in the, the crew position. And it seemed like there was more opportunity for certainly for, for being a skipper and, and potentially for leadership on teams and, and different things like that. Uh, the Michigan team was actually about 70% male when I joined the team. Mm-hmm. Um, now I believe it's actually about 60% female or 55%. And we made some, some big changes on the team to make that happen. I think one of the biggest learnings on, on the Michigan level for our team was the people who joined the team are looking for people who look like them when mm-hmm. they're recruiting. So just by having our women go to the recruiting events, we completely changed our numbers. Uh, if, if we had a table of only women, the, the women who are approaching the, the tables would say, oh, there's a, there's a woman sailing team. If we had uh, mostly women and one guy, that was still pretty good. Um, but we found that when it was all girls, like literally all girls, guys still came at the same rate. Kind of, you could read into that however you want. <laughs> and uh, just more, more women would approach the table. Um, so, and the other thing is my, my co-captain, Amy, obviously uh, a woman, and having the leadership team reflect what you want the team to look like is incredibly important. So that was a big learning for, for the organization. And, and I think for myself going forward, if I start a business or anything like that, is the people who you, you put at the front of the room will probably look very similar to the people who fill the room. So that was, that was a big learning from, from our perspective. And if we, want, if we want to recruit more guys, we'll just send more guys to the recruiting tables. It's actually just about that easy. That's pretty incredible. You guys kind of made it an, an experiment and actually tracked the results of it. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's true with a lot of jobs too. I mean, it's uh, like affirmative action and, and diversity in the workplace is such a big thing today. And it yeah. oftentimes could be as simple as just sending the group that you're trying to recruit to, to <laughs> exactly. the table. <laughs> exactly. And I mean, there's, there's a lot more nuance there uh, to, you know, once you have women on the team, are they, are, are they having equal access to the opportunities? Mm-hmm. Is, even if they have equal access, are they perceiving that access to be equal? I can talk a lot about uh, conversations I've had with the, the Ginsburg Center, which is a, a center that supports student orgs on campus about how you can create a more accessible community. We've thought about that a lot for products management. Um, in the products management club I'm in. For, for sailing, it took also policy change. Uh, with, with the Midwest level, it's now a requirement that half of the races at the Midwest championship are skippered by a woman. Uh, and that, that is a, a direct affirmative action decision. And that was very controversial. Actually, most of the negative feedback we got about that came from women uh, who said, you know, if, we, if we're sailing at, at the Midwest championship, we want it to be because we've earned this spot. We don't want to be handed it. Yeah. And that I completely understand that. And I, I, I hear that. We, we found if we want to make change, we needed to do something that was a little bit more active than just expecting people to make the right decisions when there's no accountability system. What we found is especially smaller teams, if there wasn't a requirement, then there was no incentive. And it was just very unlikely that they were going to actually produce a a woman skipper and, and it's it's kind of interesting to think about how I think a lot of times you might have the perception that you know if, if a woman wants to be a skipper she'll she'll step into that role she'll say she'll raise her hand and say I want to do that mm-hmm. um, but it's it's often not that case and I think that's true for sailing and otherwise that 
you need to actually say, you know, this spot is for you. Um, we want you to do this. And otherwise people get relegated to the roles that they see in front of them. It's just like with the, just like with the recruiting where you have women at the recruiting table, if you have all of your skippers on the team are men and there's no women skippers, it's just, even if you say you want, you want like to create that opportunity for people, it's just not apparent that that's a real option until they see it. So my, my hope is for, for sailing to get to a point where we don't have to set, set boundaries and say this number of races needs to be raised by one gender or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think if you're, if you're wanting to see change in an organization, you have to actually make a decision to make that happen. Uh, certainly if you want to accelerate it and, and of course there will be some, some uh, negative feedback with any decision you make like that, but I'm so glad that we did something rather than nothing. Yeah. And uh, I think once, once we see more teams training skippers and there's training, training, training women skippers and I, I don't at all want to paint the picture that there are no women skippers before. There, there were, and there were incredible women skippers. <laughs> Actually, one of them, uh, Bella Lustrock, beat me literally every single regatta my entire, my entire career growing up. Um, and she won women's nationals, actually. She's, she's from Minnetonka, too. She was on the, the Boston College team that won women's nationals one year. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's definitely a lot, of, a lot of opportunities. But still, if you want, if you want to make something better, you're just going to have to take some kind of action, whether that's sending different people to the recruiting table or changing some policy. It needs to come both top down and bottom up. Yeah, that's, that's such an awesome experience. And I'm glad, glad you shared it because I think people can take away a lot from that. And we could talk about it for probably a lot longer, but oh, absolutely, we'll uh, we'll continue on in your uh, college journey, so we don't make this super long. So after your freshman year, you started talking about this a little bit, but you worked at United Health Group. You said you were maybe gonna be in a software engineering or development role, but I don't think you were. No. How did you How did you end up getting this job, and and what was the experience like there? Yeah. Uh... I, I was fortunate to get a referral from uh, one of the advantaged teachers, actually. So, I mean, uh, that that process of getting that first job started my junior year of high school, which is a certainly very privileged position to be in. So I, I got the, the software engineering job as a freshman. And on my first day, there were there were 10 or so interns. It grew to, I think, 15 or 14 at the end of the summer as our product team grew. Um, but I was, I was definitely the youngest on the team. I think I was the only one who wasn't of legal drinking age on the team, <laughs> uh, as a freshman, which, uh, was, was fine. I was living at home. So kind of, uh, had, had friends who I could go hang out with when they were all going to the bar. Yeah. Um, but I was, I was placed in a, in a position that was, uh, probably above what I was properly qualified for. Um, and then I completely didn't do the job at all. Um, so I, <laughs> I was supposed to be a software developer. My manager, an uh, incredibly inspiring guy, uh, his name's Daniel Gill. Uh, he, he is super open and, and shares his, his journey with, with everyone, basically. I'm sure you could find articles about him online. Um, but he, he went through recovery from addiction to, to alcohol. And uh, he... He shared his his experience with with me and the rest of the team, and said there are, I mean, sixty thousand deaths from from opioid abuse, and there are I mean, the the problem is gigantic, uh, substance use disorder, and only recently have people recognized substance use disorder as an actual disease and not a, a mental problem or personality issue. Um, it's it's a disease, 
And um, he he said United Health Group is is well equipped to to help solve this problem or to address this problem. So he said to the interns, basically, uh, he always spoke in grand terms. He, he said, basically, we want you to solve the opioid epidemic during your internship um, and, you know, throw in alcohol uh, abuse too and, and see if see if you can help people who are in recovery from, from any kind of uh, drug addiction. And so that was, that was a pretty overwhelming first day on the job. Um, he he basically left it to that. He pointed to a couple of resources within the company that he thought we could leverage, like machine learning or uh, caseworkers or different things like that that existed. And he said, I want you to connect the dots. I don't care whether your role is, uh, what, what, what your roles are. I don't care what you do. I don't care if you're working on the beach in Hawaii for two hours or in this office 24-7. Just I want to see what you can come up with. Um, so on, on that product, I ended up, becoming a products manager before I knew what a products manager was. Uh, and I, again, I, I saw, you know, I could code or I could step up and be a leader of this team. Someone needs to organize the efforts, decide what, what we're going to spend our time on. Someone needs to do the research and I was interested in business and most of them were really toward the coding side. Um, and someone needed to do the design for this and I had design experience and, Someone needed to talk to the different stakeholders across the company and sell this product internally. Um, so I raised my hand for all of those things and my team was uh, awesome and supported me. And it was, it was a complete team effort. I had three or four others helping with, with business side things and all of this was going on in parallel while the engineers were, were working on building the solution for the sake of keeping uh, this this call within like a five hour period. Uh, basically that summer we went from just an idea to a working demo for internal sales. And I was going around giving sales pitches around the company. And I would actually describe my, my last month in the internship as actually a salesperson. So I went from being a, a practically just a user researcher or a, a business analyst to being our team's designer to being the product manager uh, working with the engineers to deliver a, a product and then a salesperson to sell it on the other side all within the scope of about three months. And largely that was my manager believing we could change the world in three months and setting us up in front of the right people. And um, we got to present to the CIO of United Healthcare and just super, just super lucky to be on that team. Um, if I was on another team, there's no way I would have been allowed to be a product manager and I didn't even know what that was. So I would have coded and who knows what I would have been doing now. Um, I went back for a second summer to see that through with a, a, a the same manager, but I was also working with a, a senior products manager in the opioid space. So I learned a lot about the difference between getting uh, getting applause and head nods and excitement about a product and getting real ownership. I learned a lot about what is what is a roadmap and what's an MVP. An MVP isn't solving the opioid epidemic. An MVP is getting something out the door. Um, and just a lot of learnings because I got a lot of excitement after the first summer and they sent a market research team after what we had done of full-time employees. And they said, yeah, this is actually exactly right. The interns were onto something. Uh, you should probably do what they were suggesting. And then no one actually owned it. Uh, so like, getting people to actually buy into something is completely different than getting them to approve of it um, is, is a major learning that I had. And delivering something is ultimately where you create value. We could get a bunch of excitement and head nods, but until it's out actually helping people, um, we're not actually doing any good. Um, so I went back a second summer to, to scope the product a lot and 
uh, I'll spare a lot of details, but they ended up um, working on a partnership with another company uh, to actually deliver deliver products to to end customers. And I could I could probably paint the picture as what I did was exactly what was shipped. It was it was a little bit different, but I'm just excited that. Uh, there's there's a product out there actually helping people. That is incredible. And I, I'm i sure you know as well, a lot of people that have worked at United Health Group just because, I mean, thousands of people just in our area work there, tens of thousands. Right. And so I've known a lot of my friends or mutual friends go work at internships at United Health Group. And it does sound like in a lot of cases, it's pretty hands off. Mm-hmm. And I've heard some people take advantage of it like you have and some <laughs> people kind of just kind of coast through the summer. I think it's your personality and you might not be able to describe how you're so motivated, but did you have problems taking such initiative? And was it just simply your personality that motivated you <laughs> to like do so much work and take on such an ambitious project that summer? Was it partially your manager, it sounds like, or... Do you have any advice yeah. for people on taking initiative and staying motivated in roles that are so loosely defined like you had that summer? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a great question. It's certainly not just my own initiative, um, but I, I've done a lot to, to build that. But I, I would say first, it was my manager. Um, he was probably one of the most passionate people I've met in my entire life. So there's, there's a lot of luck in any story I tell today um, or unluck. Um, but uh, with, with this project, it was, I, mean, I was supposed to be a software developer and I didn't want to be a software developer. That's what I realized once I was on the job. So I said, you know, screw that. I'm not going to be, I'm going to do something that I feel is valuable. Um, and, and of course you have to respect your manager and that's where I had the, the permission from my manager to do whatever I thought was valuable. But if, if, you're, if you're in a role that doesn't motivate you and excite you, then try to figure out what, what actually would create value. I think a lot of times if you're, if you're not motivated to do something, it's because you don't see the purpose in what you're doing. Um, whether that's the, the type of role not being the right fit for you or the product you're working on or whatever your job is. Um, and if you can figure out a way to communicate the value of changing from that to your manager, even if they're originally not, um, not supportive of that, if you can say, you know, I could, I could do this or I could do this other thing and here's how I think it would create more value. Um, then, then I think that's, that's a way to get out of that trap of feeling demotivated. Um, some managers and some jobs require that you, you deliver on the job that's in your title, especially once you're not an intern and have actual responsibilities. So sometimes it, it might be going beyond your responsibilities. It's, can I, can I do this other project if I'm delivering on what you're expecting of me? And you have to build some trust first for that to happen. But when I'm, when I'm giving advice for how, how students can get into product management, especially those who are software engineers, I tell them, finish your projects for the summer four weeks early and then ask your manager if you can be a product manager for the last four weeks because typically intern projects are easier than they're they're not going to take all your time and and you, you talked about how how you've heard of friends just twiddling their thumbs um so that's that's the main thing is if you see something you want deliver on what you need to and then just make it happen and i think yes you're doing more work that way but I think you're more motivated for all of your work because you're actually enjoying it and feel like you're creating value. And then you're seeing that that work you don't want to do as a stepping stone to something important rather than just a waste of time. 
Uh, I think it's, it's really important to value your own time. I think it's easy, especially as an intern, to say, well, I'm getting paid so much money and <laughs> I guess they're, uh, they're paying me to do nothing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm like, good, good for me. I'm, I'm getting all this like free money. Uh, but treat, treat your own time as having a cost and it's, it's not paid by someone paying you a salary. It's if you, if you want to actually value your time, it means you're doing something important with it. Um, mm -hmm. and if they're paying you to do something meaningless, then get out of that because it's, that's where you get demotivated. Um, and then just a little bit more tactical advice maybe is to read the seven habits of highly effective people. I mean, it's just, it's such a classic self-help book and some people are more interested in self-help than others. I, I think, um, appreciating that you have things to learn um, is, is part of how you can get into self-help and um, giving yourself forgiveness. I think, I think one reason why people might not read a book like that is they feel like it's the antithesis of what they're currently doing <laughs> and it, it feels really challenging and demotivating and it, it kind of feels like you're being told you're, you're living your life wrong if you yeah. interpret it wrong. Um, but, you know, read, read a book like Seven Habits or... Um, I mean, there's a million and one self-help books out there, but for me, Seven Habits is a really big one. And the, the first habit is called being proactive, and that's what you're describing. And I think it took a lot from, from what that really means. I'm not going to take his thunder, go read the book. Um, and uh, he, those, all of those habits are about making your life the way you want it to be and, and contributing more to the people around you. Um, and I think there's some really tactical advice in terms of how you can structure your day and put put the, the first things first and put the rocks in the jar first and then the sand will fill around it. Um, I, I'm not going to belabor the topics. He's way better at describing it in the book. Uh, but, but go give that a read. I think that was, I read that at, when I went into college and that was the perfect time to read it. And I also just reread it this summer before my internship. Um, I think that one is, has been especially powerful for me. Yeah. It's amazing how timeless that book has been. I mean, is it like 30 years old or maybe even more than that? Yeah, I, think it's... I, I don't, I don't know. Um, but, and, and it's also, it's, it's not just about business. That book mm -hmm. is about being a more effective person. Um, and the examples in that book, I mean, I was reading about how to be a better parent um, as like a senior in high school. So of course that part wasn't super relevant. Um, but you can, you can translate a lot of those things into, you know, parenting is actually kind of similar to being a product manager sometimes, um, or these, these kinds of things. So I highly recommend that book. And yeah, I'm, I'm going to be rereading it every time I get a new role in my life and think about how I can apply those principles to it. That's, that's one thing I've been trying to do more. And I think people don't do enough is either rereading or just really reflecting on books that you've read a year down the road because it's yeah. hard it, like it's hard to retain knowledge unless you unless you're reflecting on it and and rereading it and and you probably gain more out of it the yeah. more and more you read yeah i think rereading it is almost like taking a final exam it's mm -hmm. it's like when you're reading it the first time you're like oh yeah it all makes sense and yeah i'll do all this and then you read it again a couple months later and it's like oh yeah i missed the mark on these three and mm -hmm. um that, that gives you i think a lot more insight into where you actually have room for improvement yeah, that book and um, How to Win Friends and Influence People have been my favorite health or self-help books. I don't know if you've read that one. I might have to stop by and grab it. I, that's been, I think, in the top like 10 of my reading list for like a year and a half. So I'm going to have to make it happen if you're right. You, you should. It's, uh, I mean, it, I, I think it's a little kind of like clickbaity title almost, yeah. <laughs> but I've, I've found the advice in that just really good for managing relationships and, and dealing with people. I'll give it a read. 
Okay. So for people who didn't catch that, that role you had lasted for two summers. And that's right. After that, you're entering your junior year and you ended up at Redfin. Well, actually, before that, you were talking about networking in college and that you had yeah. some great advice for that. I imagine I could be wrong, but this was probably around the time where it started really ramping up for you as you were yeah. looking for more uh, specific product management roles. Do you want to talk about your networking experience, what you've learned and, and what advice you have for people? Yeah, uh, I'll try to keep it relatively brief and tactile. Um, mm -hmm. There's there's a couple of major things I've I've learned throughout recruiting. Um, one of them is relationships you form are most valuable two years later or a year and a half later. Um, if if you see networking as short term for your first position that you're looking for right now, you're missing a ton of value. When I was a freshman in high school, I was networking with juniors and seniors, and especially, or sorry, not, not freshman in high school, freshman in college. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was a freshman in college, I was networking with juniors and seniors, and especially my sophomore year, I was really doubling down on that. And those relationships ended up being incredibly valuable because I was meeting people in person on campus, so you have a much more personal connection with them. And by the time I was looking for my junior year internship or my senior year internship, I had really meaningful connections to people who were in industry. And the, the value I got out of those sophomore year relationships wasn't really fully realized, and it's still not fully realized. Um, but I, I recognized it more and more as time went on, and I, I kept in touch with all of them. Um, I would say I absolutely would not have had the Microsoft offer if I hadn't done that, because um, the, the guy I met my my sophomore year ended up giving me incredible advice for how to prepare for that interview um, and how to network my way into it. Um, so that was, that was one big thing I learned is network early before you even know what you want and those relationships will become a lot more valuable over time. Another one is to treat these as actual relationships. Um, like they, it's, it's super easy to have an ask in mind and, and talk to someone until you get that ask and then forget about them. Mm -hmm. um, and again, you're just, you're just wasting so much potential of that relationship. Um, like finding ways that you can actually help each other is, is a huge thing. Um, like some of, these, some of these relationships that started as professional networking things uh, became more personal. And when I was in San Francisco, I went and got dinner with, with one of the guys because um, we we just become friends. He was he was one of the ones who taught me what product management was. Um, I, I think being humble and saying, you know, I I actually have no idea about this role I'm applying to. Can you explain to me what it is? Uh, I think he appreciated my humility there. And because I stayed in touch with him, he saw how much I grew from not knowing what product management was to being a product manager at Salesforce. Like that that relationship is just there's just a lot of depth there. And and then I've also learned just a couple of almost like psychological tips for for how to get people to respond to you. Um, these, these might be more tactical. One of them is if you have the fortune of having a warm connection with someone, put that in literally the first three words that you send to that person. Um, when, I'm, when I'm sending an email or a LinkedIn request, my very first words are connected via Wally Estenson. Mm -hmm. And then I get into the message so that they immediately see, oh, actually Wally told him to come here and now I'm accountable to Wally because I'm Wally's friend to actually respond. 
Um, if, if they read, you know, hey, I'm Austin, I'm interested in the Salesforce internship, and I'd love it if you could give me some advice, and Wally said you're a good person to talk to, that's below the fold, and they're not even going to get to that part. Um, so that's, that's a major change I made that, that increased my response rate dramatically. Um, another thing is to study behavioral economics a little bit, um, or just take a couple of tips from this call, and one of them is the foot in the door is super applicable to recruiting. If you ask for something small first and then follow up with a larger request, you're, you're much more likely to, to, to get what you want. Um, starting with a simple yes or no question is a great way to get someone to respond to a message versus ask, actually asking them for time. Once they start responding and you have a conversation, then you can ask to actually have a caller to, to elevate the, the level of discussion. But if you, if you start up front with, can we spend 30 minutes? It's like, I don't even know you. Um, like that's, that's a big ask. So what, what's, an, uh, what's an example of, of your simple yes or no questions that you would ask people? One that actually gets me a lot and that made me realize this is, uh, I see on your, your, your LinkedIn profile, you, you worked at uh, Redfin uh, as a product manager, is that correct? Like, like literally super simple questions that are like, there's an obvious answer to this and like requires no mental effort to respond. Like things, things like that, especially if you can find a mutual interest, like, Hey, I see you're, you're into sailing. Were, were you in Midwest sailing? Like, were you on the Michigan sailing team? Yeah. Um, something that's literally a yes or no answer that will start the conversation. And then another thing that, that is super powerful is cognitive dissonance, which is, the feeling you get when your behaviors and your thoughts or your words don't align. Uh, it's a psychological concept that there's a ton of literature on. Um, but if, if you ask someone ahead of time, hey, I'm, I'm applying for this position in the fall. This has been a super valuable conversation. Uh, is there any way that, that you could refer me then? Um, like I, I'm not asking for a referral yet. The, the application isn't open, but could you refer me in the fall, do you think? Um, and now, there's another uh, concept of present, bi present bias, which means you're, you value your time in the present much more than in the future, and you undervalue costs in the future and overvalue them in the present. So the, the cost to me of giving you a referral is much higher now than in the future in my mind. So I'm so much more likely to say yes to a future request, and then later on you say, hey, earlier you said that uh, you might be willing to refer me. Is that something you're still willing to do? And now this is where cognitive dissonance comes in. And they're like, oh, yeah. Like, um, <laughs> I don't want like to, but I <laughs> Yeah. Like I said that earlier. I'm not going to like go against something I said previously. So yeah. that has been also super effective. It's just like start with a small ask in the future. And that, that takes um, the luxury of having the time to do that. And that's why it's important to start networking early. But that, that is also a super powerful thing um, for, for getting people to commit to something, um, is ask for it in the future and then follow up on that request later. So those, those are a couple of tactical things I've learned. Yeah, that's, that's incredible advice. A couple of those I haven't, I haven't really even heard of anyone uh, of doing that, especially the, the simple yes or no question. I'm going to have to try <laughs> that out. And being like a foot in the door, it totally makes sense. And in another sense, you're doing, like you've alluded to, you're doing the same thing when you connect with someone a year or two in advance of the potential internship or job you're going to be looking for down yeah. the road. And when, when you talk to someone and you're just asking them about their experience and it's really truly a learning conversation rather than asking for something conversation, you have such a high respect and they're more likely to refer you later if they see, 
like like if you get to the end of the call and they're like, okay, where's the ask? And you're like, thanks so much for taking the time. I've learned a ton. And they're like, whoa, like what just happened? Um, we were actually just having a conversation and there's like, he's not demanding anything of me because like at, at that point I hadn't earned the ability to ask that because I, I try to give some kind of value to before I can um, ask for something. Sometimes it's, it's okay to ask for a referral or something if you don't have something to, to provide back, but if you ever can try to do that too. Mm-hmm. That's uh, something that I, I definitely did in college too and, and learned maybe midway through. But I think just also putting yourself in their shoes and realizing, like if it is for a job, realizing the recruiting schedule that's going on. Like obviously if it's a few months before they're hiring, they're going to expect that it's for the job. And you're probably much less likely to get the response from them at that time too. So Right. Cause there's so many people who are sending messages a month or two before the job. Uh, yeah. if, if you can get off the recruiting schedule for your networking schedule, which is a concept that only exists in college, yeah. uh, it's, it's so valuable. Uh, the response rates are probably 50 times higher if you do it um, in, in November or uh, probably actually probably depending on the position, like depends, depends on when the, the application opens. But if you can get at the opposite end of the year of when the application is open, that's, that's where you'll get the best responses. Yeah, that's definitely powerful advice. So whoever's listening, take advantage of that. <laughs> you, I, I mentioned that you went to Redfin, but another thing you did junior year was you went, you went to Barcelona uh, uh, yeah. for study abroad. Do you want to just, uh, briefly talk about why you picked Barcelona and, and some of the big takeaways from that experience? Yeah, I can keep this one definitely short and sweet. Uh, I picked Barcelona because it was one of two Spanish programs that allowed me to pay much lower tuition than going to, to a school that was paid through Michigan. So I, I basically paid the equivalent of in-state tuition to go to Barcelona. So I saved a ton of money studying abroad, um, (laughs) which is incredible. Uh Um, If if you can investigate the billing system at your school and find ways to save money studying abroad, then that's probably one of the main reasons people don't study abroad is they feel like they can't afford to Mm -hmm. Um, financially. The other option, the other issue is if you can't afford to with your class schedule. Um, But for me, it was both cheaper and I got more credits toward my degree than I would have if I stayed home. So you can you can hopefully figure out a way to get both of those things with study abroad, so it doesn't feel like a distraction uh, or a financial burden. Um, so I, I knew I wanted to speak Spanish too, so that also helped narrow uh, narrow the choices. Even though in in, in Catalonia they speak Catalan, um, so there was a mix of Spanish and, and Catalan. But I lived with a, a host family in Barcelona. Uh, I I learned a ton about Spain, about European politics. I was uh, probably more informed about European politics than I've ever been about U.S. politics, which is slightly embarrassing. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, it was, no, it's uh, not. I mean, I feel like I'm <laughs> the same way. <laughs> yeah, I would say it was slightly less depressing learning about other people's problems, uh, which is super sad. But anyway, I found Bre- Brexit super interesting. Um, but the biggest takeaway by far was learning about how I wanted to live my life. Um, and in Spain and Europe, they really live to they, they work to live and in the u.s it's very often to live to work and mm-hmm. just seeing that it's it's common to pick up a two-month vacation in the middle of the of the year or to go and get coffee for three hours in the middle of the work day because you value your relationships and your downtime 
certainly is less productive. Like you're going to have lower GDP, you're going to make slightly lower salaries, but your quality of life is just so much better. Um, once, once you're to a certain point and you're comfortable and there's, there's a lot of social inequity involved in this too. So this is going to turn into a super nuanced conversation. But, um, for, for me, it became clear that I could work a little bit less and get a lot of reward. If I just set, set more boundaries for myself for when I'm going to be having fun and realize it's okay to take a walk in the middle of the day and, and unwind a little bit, um, not to relegate fun and enjoyment to the weekends. That was probably the biggest learning I had the entire time. Mm -hmm. Um, at least from an actual actionable standpoint that I could implement in my life in space. That's awesome. Good takeaway for people hoping to study abroad because, in fact, it can be less expensive. I had the same experience going to Hong Kong. And now we can get into your internship at Redfin. After junior year, you shipped off to Seattle. Can you tell us about Redfin and what your role was there? Yeah. Redfin is... One of several companies that is working to disrupt the housing industry and change the way people buy and sell homes. Um, Redfin is my favorite of those companies. Um, Zillow is probably the, the name you think of first when you think of um, buying and selling homes online. They've traditionally been the Google of home buying and selling. They're, they were traditionally more a search site. Um, Redfin actually employs real estate agents and I think Zillow might to some extent now. Um, but Redfin employs real estate agents. You go on the website, you find a home that you're interested in buying, or you list your home online with a real agent in person. And, uh, those, those agents help, help take people through tours. There's also self touring. There's a lot of new, uh, initiatives in, in the industry such as iBuying, which is where you can, um, you can buy a home entirely online, uh, including all the paperwork and everything, uh, at least as far as I'm aware. And uh, you can also sell your home online. There's 3D home touring. So they're just taking technology and applying it to, to housing, more or less. My role there was my first completely formalized product management internship. Um, I, was, I came in as a product manager. My mentor was a product manager. My manager was a product manager. Um, so I got an incredible amount of learning there. And actually I absolutely loved Redfin. I was literally in tears on my way out on the last day because mm -hmm. I love the culture and the people and, and the products I was working on and just so many great opportunities for learning there. Um, I would 100% recommend anyone works at Redfin too. Um, I think, uh, again, I, I made that decision out of luck. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. I, I applied to probably like 70 companies and I had one product management offer I was excited about, which was Redfin. Mm -hmm. uh, and that just ended up being such a perfect fit for me culturally. I, I, was, I joined the Ultimate Frisbee team. I, um, I loved working on the products. My manager trusted me to have way more authority and influence than I should have had. It was kind of a similar story in that way to United Health Group. Um, I, I learned a ton that summer, and um, I would be super happy working there too. Uh, I think. What, what makes me concerned about uh, any industry like housing right now is just the, the market with uh, coronavirus. It's, mm -hmm. it's a little bit tougher to predict. And, and one thing that's, that's definitely something that would be important to me is, is taking a large ownership of something, which is much more likely when a company is growing. Um, I expected Redfin not to be doing well, but their stock is doing the best it has like ever. And the company seems to be doing well. So, so I probably will reconnect with, with Redfin and, and consider that for next year too. 
it's it's difficult to to compare the, the Salesforce internship to the, the Redfin internship because the Salesforce is entirely online, and I still didn't still enjoyed it. But yeah, those those are my two favorite companies in the world. Redfin, Redfin, I still has a very very strong place in my heart, and I I see myself working there at some point in the future, uh, very likely. So, yeah, that's awesome to hear, and and so great that you've had such good experiences with with the internships you've had. And before we get too deep in this, why don't you tell everyone what a product manager does? So product management is a completely different role at every company and every team within any company. So take everything about I'm about to say with a massive grain of salt, um, because product management in tech is completely different too than, than physical product management. But generally, the, the purpose of a product manager is to set the vision for a product and to figure out how it can create the most value for customers. And to see that product from from an idea through release through maintenance and different products management roles can fall in different parts of the product's life cycle between uh, the, the release or the maturity stage. Um, a product manager is working with all sorts of different people to, to deliver the products to customers. Ultimately, the value of a product manager is the value customers get out of the products they ship with their team. So if, if, um, if I were to describe a typical product management process at a tech company, the way it typically looks is you're either launching a new feature or a new product, or you're working on an existing product. Uh, for the sake of this conversation, let's talk about launching a new product. So as a product manager, I'll think about what are the kinds of problems that our customers have? Are they, are they struggling, for example, to manage their calendar? Okay, so that's that's one of the problems. Okay, let's dive into that. Is it that it's difficult to share events with other people? Is it um, difficult to uh, schedule Zoom meetings now? Like, what 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 is the core value that we're going to provide? And we'll we'll think about prioritizing those different features based on customer interviews. So if if I'm interested in in what someone wants to get out of a calendar app, I'm not going to say you know would you find a Zoom integration valuable because everyone's going to say yes. So it's thinking about how do you how do you get that insight into what customers would really value without leading them into it with a solution? Um, so there's there's a lot of customer discovery involved in figuring out what what value would customers get out of a product. And then once you understand that vision and the value you want to deliver, it's about working with all the right people at the company to make that happen. So you're working with designers to create UI and UX, and you're constantly balancing that that uh, design process with the engineering process and thinking about the different ways we could design this product and how that's going to translate to engineering costs. So you're prioritizing features based on conversations you're having with engineering and whether it's going to change the database structure and getting into the technical concepts. Then you establish what, what is your plan for the product, which you put in a product spec or a PRD, there's tons of names for it. Um, it's a document that, that communicates what you're creating uh, and is used by all the different employees at the company. So. Once you, once you know what you want the product to look like, then you work with engineering to actually build the features and build whatever you're talking about. And probably 10 times out of 10, it's not going to go like you expect. So then you go back to the designer and say, let's reprioritize and redesign this and lower the cost. Um, and then eventually you get to something that you can share with customers and you get feedback on and you repeat the process over and over again. So you're thinking about how do we test this product? Which markets do we launch it into? 
Um, can we, are we doing AB testing and turning on a feature on and off? Are we doing an alpha or beta? Um, who are the right customers to send this to? You work with pricing teams to figure out the best pricing structures. So it's really like you, you think about every different component of a product and you work with the experts in each of those areas to make it happen. So the, the cliche term that's used for product management is it's like you're the CEO of a product without the authority of the CEO, which is pretty true. Uh, it's, it's all about finding the right people and motivating them toward that competition and leveraging the strengths of everyone on your team and balancing the trade-offs between them, um, between the difference, like engineering and design, for example, um, to ultimately hopefully get something valuable in customers' hands that they use. And why don't, why don't we just continue on into your internship this summer? We didn't fully talk about what your ex, like, role was like at Redfin, but do you want to talk about just the differences you've seen between the two? And actually yeah. first, just tell us about what you're doing at Salesforce. Yeah, yeah, of course. So, so at Redfin, I was working on products for the real estate agents. Um, they have the software that the, the agents use to make them uh, more effective at selling and, and buying homes and, and better customer advocates. So I was working on, on software that, that one product I was working on helped improve the relationship between the agent and the customer on a, on a very small scale, um, having to do with the saved searches um, that you can make on the site. And then the other, the other big project I was working on at Redfin was improving the time off experience for agents. And I, I can't go into the details of that project exactly, but that was really cool products because I was working with HR and legal and marketing and the managers of the agents and the agents themselves. And it was a completely, um, my, my roles were, were very diverse in that product. I was, I felt more like uh, HR, uh, more like an HR person than like a product manager at times. Um, Cause it was, it just it, it expanded so far beyond the scope of just creating technology. I was working on policy too, um, and then at Salesforce, uh, also product management, but on a on a much smaller part of the company, which is fairly obvious given the size of Salesforce and the size of Redfin. And I think that's one of the biggest trade offs that all of all of the students who are fortunate enough to have uh, product management opportunities, especially an associate product management role. Um, which is a rotational program, I'll get into that in a second, is do I go to a, a large company where there's potentially more prestige, there's um, probably better job security, um, but I'm working on a smaller part of a very large system, or do I go to a place like Redfin where I can still make great scale? I mean, they're, they're 500 in the, the corporate office, roughly 500 employees, so pretty big team and, and a couple thousand agents, so you can create national impact um, and you can own a larger percent of the business just because it's so much smaller and Salesforce is, I think like 40,000 employees. Um, so that's, that's one big trade off that I'm still navigating. Um, I've decided it's probably easier to start really big and then, then go small, um, later on. And this is in part just advice from my parents who both did that. Um, but I, I think the, what, what I really like about a rotational program at Salesforce, and this will describe what, I'm do, what I did this past summer too, is um, as an associate products manager, you rotate around different products. So the full-time associate products manager position is eight months on three different products or three different, like, complete different areas of the business. Um, and the internship is 12 weeks on a different product also. So this summer I was working on a product that 
that makes the learning experience better for Salesforce, um, both onboarding and learning new features. And I was creating tools for Salesforce administrators at every company to use to improve that guidance. Um, so definitely a, a more niche product, but there's there's also a ton of excitement about the product and the scale is, is incredible. I mean, when I, when I released, I released two dashboards over the summer. And when I released them two weeks ago, I had uh, account executives reaching out to me from or, or solutions engineers, all these different roles reaching out from Belgium or from across the States and saw just the scale that you can have with a large company was, was really cool too. Uh, so one, one part of the associate project management program is you're working on, on products that are core to the company. Everything that you're working on, at least at Salesforce is very important work. Like if, if I didn't do this product, it would get done anyway. Um, like it's, it's work that's not just an intern project. I, I had real ownership over it too. I, I set the vision and the where the product went. I was interviewing real customers. Uh, it was it was a very real product management experience, probably the most real I've had um, alongside Redfin. Um, and um, the other part of the associate product management program at Salesforce in particular, I think this sets it apart from the other APM programs if there's listeners who are considering which which area in the product management to go into. Um, Salesforce treats the APM program like you're getting an MBA at Salesforce. There, I really felt like half of my time was back in school when I was at Salesforce. They brought effectively guest lecturers from all over the company. And on my last day, I was getting taught about security by the, the chief trust officer, which is what Salesforce calls the chief security officer at Salesforce. Um, when I was learning about Tableau, and the, the power of visualizing data, I was learning from the chief product officer of Tableau. Um, like it was all, they, they brought in executives from every single cloud to teach us, you know, here's how, here's how we do marketing at Salesforce. Um, and that was from one of the leaders of, in the marketing cloud. And so we, we got all of these experts who were very fortunate to have time to spend an hour talking just to the 12 of us um, to teach us all of these concepts. Um, so they brought guest lectures in and, and that was a, a lecture plus Q&A format, just like if you had a guest lecture in college. Um, we had probably two of those a week or so, um, all from like VP plus uh, extremely, extremely proficient people who are, we really respected to teaching what they were teaching. Um, and that was just the 12 of us because there's only 12 APMs in the program, which is pretty, a very small APM program. I think Google has about 45. Um, so there's also APM programs of just one or two, and then you don't get the scale needed to have lectures like that. It's, it's, I think you're unlikely to get one-on-ones with, with all of those executives. Um, so there's the combination of launching products that are important and getting taught things from product leaders. And then the third part of the internship is, um, well, there's also social and volunteering. We actually had 56 hours of paid volunteer time off in a 12-week internship, which if you do the math, it's over a week of <laughs> volunteer time in a 12-week internship. So, I mean, that's, if you want, if you want to see, like, living your values, that's, that's one great example. Be- beyond the social and the volunteer and those other things I talked about, there's also what's called personal development sessions. And again, this just showed how much they're investing in us as leaders, not just wanting us to produce products for them. It was, I would say they invested in me more than I worked for them um, over the summer. Um, 
And those personal development sessions were having conversations about what are your top three values and, and how do those play into who you are as a leader and a person and, and share a story. Uh, that, was, that was one session. And these are hour and a half uh, seminar style conversations where they're, it's led by one of the leaders of the program and all of us are sharing super personal uh, stories about why we are the way we are <laughs> and, and things we have to learn and, and mistakes and failures we've had through the internship. And um, one of them was tell us, tell us about a story that made you who you are as a leader and, and people are sharing stories from their, their childhood and very personal things. And I got super close to the other 12 interns, even though it was completely online with COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, so that those those kinds of things to show to me just how much Salesforce cares about me as a person, um, and that's that's one of the main things that makes me excited to go back. Yeah, and that's 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 awesome to hear. Why don't you tell us about how you secured that internship in the first place at Salesforce? Yeah, so I was I was interviewing last fall. So I I had uh, the Redfin internship was between my. Uh, junior in my senior year. I'm on a five-year plan with business and computer science as the dual degree. So the the fifth year, um, probably the, the largest value I got out of that was having another internship um, and being able to get the computer science degree, which is basically a requirement to get the Salesforce internship too. Um, so after my junior year, I worked at Redfin. Um, that was when I applied to like 70 companies and got one offer, more or less. Um, and then having Redfin, I loved that so much, which, and I had a return offer, which gave me a super privileged position to only apply to companies that were better than Redfin in my mind. Um, so that's where I, I applied to probably like five or 10 companies or something and uh, ended up interviewing with Salesforce and Microsoft, which were earlier in the, in the interview cycle, I was also in process with Google and, um, the, the final round for, for Salesforce was very early on in October and and Google actually sent me next steps, like literally two hours after I accepted the Salesforce offer. So that was uh, pretty frustrating, but Google has a very strict, um, timeline and and policy that that helps them recruit more equitably. So I, I appreciate that. Um, but it, it didn't work out for me in terms of timing. Um, so I was, I was recruiting for Microsoft and Salesforce in terms of places I, I reached the final round. And um, both of those uh, took a lot of initiative that, that would take, take some time to describe all the things that I did to make that happen. But with Salesforce, I started that conversation with the recruiter over, over a year before I actually got the first interview. Um, and so that, I mean, all of, all of these were a long time coming. Um, but uh, yeah, I was considering between Redfin, Microsoft, and Salesforce. And, and Redfin was super genuine and values-driven and said, you know, this is another internship opportunity. It's, it's a great time for you to go explore. And you have an offer to come back, and you can probably come back full-time too. Um, like now is the perfect time to go out and see the world. And I know we'll see you back at Redfin someday. And I think they're right. Um, but, uh, regardless, that's, that's what I was considering between. Okay. And so what, what's your timeline here for deciding full time? And I mean, you alluded to this earlier. It sounds like you were talking to your mentor and you came to the conclusion that one, one makes more sense for you, uh, just based on who you've talked to is, uh, what what's that? Yeah, is that between 
between Salesforce and Microsoft, that was an easier decision, especially because the product area I was going to be on, I think was going to be less customer focused and less design oriented. Um, so the, the type of work I was doing was one of the main reasons why I chose uh, against Microsoft. I actually, I still really respect Microsoft as a company and I think you can have incredible experiences there. Um, and I, I would still consider to recruit for Microsoft this fall, um, but they don't have an APM program and I'm, I'm really interested in getting that rotational experience. Um, I would consider recruiting for Google and I might still. Um, and of course, Redfin is, is at the top of the list of, of interests. So I think it'll, it'll probably be considering just a couple APM programs and, and Redfin if I do recruit. Um, and like you said, I'm, <laughs> that's actually in my to-do list for today is to reach out to all of, all of the mentors and see what they think I should do in terms of recruiting. Yeah, that's really good. I'll probably ask your opinion after this uh, podcast too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'll, we'll, we'll, we'll talk after for sure. Sounds I don't know good. how much I can offer in advice. You know me pretty well. That's true. So obviously at United Health Group, you had a very clear potential impact and a, and a goal that I think most people could find a strong purpose in. When you're thinking about where you want to start your career and, and knowing you, I imagine you've put a lot of thought into what your impact will be and where you can make it. What's been your, what's been your thought process around that? Yeah, that's a great question. I think this parallels the question of working on a small company versus a large company too. Mm -hmm. um, I I have placed work. I would say working on a problem that I care about is a filter that I apply before I even think about recruiting somewhere. Mm -hmm. So, for example, I think Facebook and Instagram do bad for the world. Like, I think they're bad products, not because they're bad at getting money and getting people interested, but because I think they actually make the world the, world the worst place. Um, so I don't even apply there because it's not a mission I care about. And of course, there's a lot of nuance because Facebook does a lot of things, but regardless, yeah. it made it easier to just not apply there. Um, so every, every place I've applied has some kind of problem that they're solving that I believe is an important problem. For United Health Group, it's creating better healthcare. Uh, for Redfin, it's creating a better home buying and selling experience. And I deliberately thought about when I was applying, is that something I care about? And so I came to the conclusion that buying a house or selling a house is one of the most important decisions someone's make, someone makes in their life. So that's a problem that I care about. Mm -hmm. um, at Salesforce, it's making people more productive um, and, and delivering a better experience for customers. That spans like every single industry and every single uh customer in America, if the, the total addressable market is reached and Salesforce is actually pretty close to getting to just about every uh, person in America, whether you realize it or not, 98% um, of the Fortune 500 uses Salesforce products. So mm -hmm. whether you know it or not, you have interacted with Salesforce um, through the customers that, that buy Salesforce products. Um, so within, within a large company, there's a ton of different areas you can work on. And for example, in my, my closing call with the program leader, I said, I really want to be working on a, on a product that is very customer facing. I want to work on a new product um, because I think when I'm working on new products, I can find more ownership and, and more green space to define the vision. Um, and I also shared with the team that I'm super interested in health cloud. And that's actually where I, I see myself landing at Salesforce eventually uh, or starting my own company or um, some kind of hybrid of 
intrapreneurship where I'm starting a company within Salesforce, uh, which is also why I want to work on new products to learn that experience. It's completely with the vision in mind of, of going into solving something in healthcare is still the area I'm most interested in right now. Um, so Salesforce has a massive industry cloud for healthcare where I think Salesforce is super well equipped to disrupt what, what healthcare looks like because my vision for healthcare and, and a vision United Health Group shares too is proactive healthcare um, where you are constantly interacting with your doctor, uh, either directly or indirectly through data, through wearables or other, other technology, um, where you're predicting my likelihood of having a disease or having an issue and preventing it. So prevent, preventative and predictive healthcare using machine learning and creating a more proactive relationship between the, the patient and the doctor is something that I think is the future of healthcare. And that is exactly what Salesforce does. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's when you, when you think of Salesforce now, if you know what it is, you probably think of CRM, which is the sales part where it's, it's about managing the relationship between the salesperson and the customer. Um, what Salesforce is really all about is called the customer 360. When you think about a person who's buying a product, they're interacting with the cus- with the company through marketing, through sales, through service, through the website e-commerce they're interacting with them with their data so there's a back-end involved and that's why salesforce bought mulesoft which is a, a data integration company there's the, the 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 data part is so important because you're thinking about how can we deliver a more personalized experience that's relevant for the customers so that's why salesforce bought tableau i mean the, the vision is all about taking a customer through a better buying or or whatever the experience is that the customer is going through um, and if you take that vision of managing every aspect of a customer in the, in the context of Adidas or a traditional retail company, and then you apply that to healthcare, it makes complete sense. It's talking about if, if someone is going into opioid recovery and they're going into rehab, there's so many interactions before and after rehab. And 80% of the time, they're going to relapse after rehab. And that's in part because the dots aren't connected between the different services and the, the, the person's primary care clinician might not have the right information from the caseworkers at the clinic. So thinking about how can you manage a better relationship with customer and, and in this case, the patient and predict when they're most likely to relapse. Or if, if you're, if you're um, getting, getting treatment for diabetes, what are the right treatment routes for you and personalized healthcare uh, that, is something that Salesforce is like, it's in their DNA. It's, it's every single product that they've acquired makes complete sense for that. And that's a major reason why I applied to Salesforce. And it's a major reason why I think I'll probably stay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I think most people don't realize the the scope of what Salesforce does. And <laughs> yeah, that's... almost certainly not. I think most Salesforce employees don't realize <laughs> the scope of what Salesforce does, myself included. Well, that that sounds super exciting. I hope you get to work on uh, that sort of project if you end up at Salesforce. Me too. Okay. I think this is a good spot to get into some kind of quick end of the interview rapid questions. If sounds good. You mentioned seven habits of highly effective people. Do you have any other favorite books? Yeah. Um, I, I really like switching between fiction and nonfiction um, when I'm reading right now, I'm reading how to be an anti-racist, which I recommend that is certainly in the academic category. I mean, I yeah. feel like I'm studying, uh, which is good because I'm learning a lot. I think that's one that's that a lot of people are talking about right now. My, my favorites nonfiction of all time, probably one of them would be, Kite Runner. I love that book. Um, I think if you're looking for a, a 
a fiction, that would be a great one. And then for nonfiction, I love Seven Habits. And I'm, I'm a little bit more hesitant to recommend this one because it's a little bit more maybe esoteric or um, if, you, if you aren't into self-help, tread lightly <laughs> with this one. Um, but yeah. the, the Power of Now is, is a book that I think I read at the right time also. I read that going into the summer um, when, when coronavirus was disrupting basically everything in most of our lives and thinking about how can you make the most of the moment and sort of accept reality how it is. Um, that, that book has some parts that are a little bit off-putting to, to some people. For example, there's a section where there's this little symbol and uh, it's shaped like a curly cue and it says, anytime you see the symbol, take a moment and pause and reflect upon the truth of what has been said. It's like, all right, we need to, we need to calm down a little bit. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I think some of the learnings I got about um, just how, how thinking about the past um, and, and regretting or or longing and thinking about the future too much is, is taking away from the present. That's sort of the core learning of that book. And um, he, he does a really good job of diving really in depth about that. Um, so I think it's, it's been, a, it's, it's a philosophy book that, that sort of has changed my outlook on, on living in the present even more. I'll have to read that. And I, I also think people, um, people kind of push aside fiction after a while and think there's not a lot to get out of it, but I think there certainly is. And it sounds like you agree to not only just personal enjoyment, but human relationships and, and much, much more. Um, I don't know if you are big into podcasts, but if you are, what's your favorite podcast? Uh, I used to be really into podcasts, especially my freshman and my sophomore year when I was driving to work every day. I would listen religiously to Masters of Scale. That's probably my favorite podcast. Um, and I, I still listen to that one occasionally. And then the other one is um, with, uh, I'm going to blank on his name. Who's Who wrote 2021? 20, hour work week or what, what seven hour work oh, week or whatever. Tim Ferriss, four hour work Yeah, there we go. Yeah. The other the other four hour work week. Wow, that's really embarrassing. I read that book a couple years ago. Um that's don't right. like that book as much. But anyway, uh the second podcast I'm really into is the Tim Ferriss show. Yeah. I love Tim Ferriss so, too. Yeah. And, I, I and think is is it Reed Hoffman that does uh Masters of yeah, Scale? Reed Hoffman does Masters of Scale. Tim Ferriss does uh the Tim Ferriss show and I love the guests that Tim Ferriss brings on. Um I think if you took the Tim Ferriss mentality and applied it to the extreme, you'd be an exhausted person. Um, it's like, it's, it's kind of a, an intense philosophy that he lives his life by. Um, and I, I think now I would take it more with a grain of salt than I did at the time. Um, but I think listening to people who are just so far into a certain way of living is uh, pretty inspiring. You can, you can learn a lot from someone who's living their life in a very different way than, than most people. Yeah. It's, He's got some fascinating people and it's, yeah. that show specifically has been a big inspiration for this show and having people like you on. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm flattered. And uh, I think um, another thing that, that I took from the Tim Ferriss show is the, the power of meditation, which is a, a big thing that's, that's part of my life now. Mm-hmm. You can get right into that. Cause I was going to ask you if you have any physical or, or mental health habits that, that you think can help everyone or have really helped you. Yeah, uh, I think meditating or finding a meditative activity, it doesn't need to be sitting cross-legged. Like if you aren't familiar with meditation, that might be what you imagine. Mm -hmm. I think finding something that allows you to escape, finding something that allows you to escape from whatever is is stressing you out at a given moment and recenter with yourself will 
is, is a super powerful thing. Um, I find that when I meditate, um, and it took a while to get to this point, I use Headspace to learn how to meditate, but there's a lot of different ways. Uh, I found physical, like physiological differences after I meditated, which I know that like studies have documented, but for me, it was just like, I felt my, I, I used to like jitter my leg a lot um, and it would shake. And after I started meditating, I wasn't doing that anymore. I got better sleep. Um, before I go into a test, I used to cram and try to study the last couple of things. I found it was tremendously more beneficial to meditate beforehand. Um, especially before a big presentation or a big deliverable, I, I actually book out time in my calendar to meditate to make sure I have time to do it. So that's, that's a major one. I also just try to do something physical, which, which usually changes every couple of months. Um, I was super excited about rock climbing and coronavirus. Uh, obviously, it's uh, not the best activity. Yeah. Um, putting your hands and fingers on the rocks everyone's breathing on. But uh, that's, that's what I'm really excited about, too. I, I try to narrow in on four or five habits that I'm trying to do in any given week. And I use Notion as the current tool I use to do my weekly journaling. And I'll try to just keep track of, of what what I'm doing and, and whether I'm actually achieving the goals I set out for myself at the start of the week. Um, right now I'm learning how to play piano. So I'm trying to play piano uh, a couple of days a week. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm excited to hear how, how that's been going because we were talking about that earlier this yeah. summer maybe, but we'll leave that for after. How about what's, what's your best tip for making the world a better place? I think it's about being courageous. Um, I think knowing what your values are is whether you whether you consciously recognize what your values are or not you get a sinking feeling when you realize something's wrong um when you see something that you disagree with um morally and it's really just about taking the leap of faith to do something about it um like like not being a bystander is another way to put it um but i think being courageous is about not just having your values and not just living by them yourself, but trying to encourage other people to live by them. Um, and part of that is humility and recognizing that people see the world differently from you. But if you can, when, whenever you see something, realize that you have to do something, whether that's learn more about their perspective um, or, or say something and stand up. Uh, if, if someone's being um, treated inappropriately it's you don't necessarily need to confront the person who's is being uh, unfair or inappropriate but at least reach out to the person who is treated inappropriately like just anytime you you have that sinking feeling of oh that's not right do something I think if, if everyone just did that it's, it's pretty small but it would have dramatic effect yeah that certainly would well said and and good advice is there anything we haven't talked about that you, you want to talk about? I think the other thing that I would just mention is people give advice uh, from their own perspective and like everything is very warped by their own experiences. So take everything I've said in this interview with a, a grain of salt and, and uh, recognize that there's a lot of luck with, with most things. It's about taking the opportunities uh, when you get them uh, Actually, one of my one of my mentors just shared this great quote. I don't know who it's from, but it's um, with the opportunities in life, you must seize the opportunity within the life of the opportunity. Um, it's, it's a pretty poetic quote. Yeah, very. Um, and uh, so I, 
anyway, I, I think a lot of these things are, are a combination of luck and, and recognizing when there's an opportunity to pursue. But the opportunities anyone has, uh, the, the, the perspective with which you look at opportunities can be defined by the people around you, but it's important to consider what's actually important to you. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good advice and a good spot to end, I think. So thank you, Austin, yeah. for coming on. Of course. Really, really happy to, to catch up in this way. It's been super fun. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed. I'll be releasing a new episode each week, so please subscribe and rate the podcast. It's really helpful for me as I try to expand to more listeners. I'd also love to hear any feedback or questions you may have. My email is in the about section of the podcast. I'm Wally Estenson, and you've been listening to The Wally Podcast.